Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. I need to say uh, how honored I am to stand here today. Uh, I'm pretty sure you all could have done a whole lot better, but uh, I'm incredibly grateful and honored, Lance, Jody, elders at Christ Fellowship to stand here. Um, in some ways, I feel like I'm just now starting to figure some of these things out, and, and I'm, uh, I'll be 64 in a couple of weeks, and so running out of time. Um, I hang out with some of uh, the young pastors here once a month, and uh, not just here, but we gather here, um, and I, I just listen to those guys with so much joy. Uh, there's so much wisdom in the room from guys who haven't been at it nearly as long as I've been trying to do it. And it's, it's just incredibly encouraging. So um, love you guys and uh, yeah, honored to be here. I, I, uh, I hadn't even chosen the text when I got my, my uh, assignment, Christ Saturated Preaching. Uh, both um, terrified and uh, excited simultaneously. Um, ex excited because what better to preach than, than that? Uh, but terrified, how do, you, how do you do justice to a topic like that? Um, how, do, how do you actually do Christ-saturated preaching in a way that really honors him? How do you search out unsearchable riches? Um, so I felt uh, overwhelmed, convicted, also um, excited about it. And before I even took a text, I was wrestling back and forth between Colossians 1 and 2 Corinthians, late 3, early 4, um, and landed here. But the first thing I, I, I thought was Christ-saturated preaching requires a Christ-saturated preacher. And um, I want to be, I want to be that. And my, my sense is that you guys do too. Um, uh, but there's, there's a whole lot that can get in the way of, of that. I want to do more than just talk about that, but I've quickly thought, I believe I could spend my whole time just talking about that reality. Um, but I think, we'll, I think we'll read scripture. You've been sitting a little while, so in honor of God's word, let's stand again, read these two verses. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Father, would you by the Spirit take the truth in these verses and drive them to our minds, to our hearts, to our affections, and Lord, from our hearts to our mouths, I can't say that I'm a Christ-saturated preacher, but I can say that I want to be. 
So, Lord, uh, help all of us by the strength that only you can give. We, we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Take your seat. Christ-saturated preaching requires a Christ-saturated preacher. Um, I don't know that that's right there in the text, verses 28 and 29, but I'm pretty sure that's all over the place in Colossians. And so I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm far from this text to suggest that to you, uh, that Paul, if anybody ever was a Christ-saturated preacher, the Apostle Paul was. It, it shows up all over the place in this little letter from his prayer report to uh, the rant he goes on about Jesus in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1 from his suffering for Christ and filling up in his flesh what's still lacking in Christ's afflictions uh, nearer our text to calling them to to walk in Christ as they have received Christ to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly to to seek to tell others about Christ in chapter 4 with the wisdom of Christ. He's all over the place. Early chapter three, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Not Christ as a part of my life, an aspect of my life, a very important part, maybe even the most important part. No, Christ who is your life. Um, Paul was saturated with with, with Christ and we should hunger for that. We should want to be that. We should grieve when we are convicted with the reality that we are not that. Um, how, how do you do it? Well, m maybe the first thing is to see these, uh, there's some false prophets that Paul's dealing with in Colossae. Scholars have been arguing forever about what exactly the Colossian heresy was, I don't know. I'm not sure. I might give a hint or two, but we're not going to worry about that today. But we know that one of these false prophets had this issue in chapter 2, verse 19, of not holding fast to the head. Not fast, holding fast to the head. And all of his struggle, all of his trouble, all of his heresy, all of his mess up, it, it, was, the, it was the fruit of that one reality. He did not hold fast to the head. And, and if we're going to be uh, Christ-saturated proclaimers of the gospel, then we have to hold fast to him. Certainly there's, a, there's another truth, isn't there, thankfully, gloriously, that our Christ holds fast to us. And so it's not all just up to me doing that, but somehow he strengthens me to cling to him with all that I have, and, we, and we've just got to do it. In, in, in everything that we do, we hold fast to him. I remember early on when I first started preaching, I was about, I was about 19 years old, and uh, I was the, I was the, it was BSU in those days. I was the BSU second string preacher. I was first string song leader and second string preacher. And uh, we got asked to do a little revival up in Southern Illinois in a little bitty church. And, uh, and Rick Butler, the first string preacher, um, John Mark, you probably remember Laverne Butler, Rick's, da uh, Rick's dad. Anyway, he couldn't do it. And so I, I, I'm preaching. And, and uh, we started on a Sunday morning, and during Sunday school, I didn't go to Sunday school. I was down, I was down in the basement of a church, and I was just pacing back and forth with my Bible. And I was just praying, Lord, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. If you leave me, this is going to be horrible. Please 
help me. Please, don't leave me. And I want to just say that that you never need to get over that. You never need to get beyond that. You never get to where you never need to get to where you're like, okay, I've been doing this for 40 years now. You just always have to approach it with that kind of fear and trembling and and clinging to the Christ who is uh, the one who will strengthen you in your preaching and the one who will be uh, the object of it. You hold fast to him. Um, That false prophet did not. I, I think, I'm pretty sure, I might even say I know, the greatest threat to being a Christ-saturated preacher is, is being a self-saturated preacher. I, I, I'm just certain that's the threat. That's the, that's the biggest problem. That's the, that's the issue. Self gets in the way. Lance, I appreciate your exhortation to all of us uh, to just get out of the way. Let's make this about Jesus, not about how we're coming off. But I got to tell you, there's still so much Steve in me, and I wrestle with that. Preaching to preachers, you know, I want you to think I'm a good preacher. You know, I mean, it's just wicked little ugly stuff, but it's true. And um, so, so you have to find a way to, to put that to death and put it to death again, because self is gonna be your biggest problem you're going to want people to think you're good and effective. You're going to like the compliments. Um, you're going to care what they think. Um, you just do. I was slogging my way through First John probably 10 years ago, and First uh, John is hard. It's complicated. I, 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 it, it doesn't. He, Paul's always going in a direction. John the Apostle just seemed like he's always going in a circle, and and I, I. It, Tried to preach, I'd worked hard on it, but I, I, wa- I was walking into the auditorium that day and I, I was like, I don't even have a clue what John is about here and now I've got to get up and say something about it. I mean, I was completely, and I was walking down the hallway adjacent to the auditorium and I looked up and there's Tom Schreiner coming down the hall. My goodness. Because um, I want Tom to think I can preach, you know? It's just, it's just, so often it gets about me and it's not about Jesus the way it should be. When that's true, you just need to tell the Lord about it and ask him to kill it and make you alive in him again. And Don't let that, that get in the way. Uh, got a Lloyd-Jones quote here, just one. I could have just read, you from preaching and pre- read to you from preaching preachers all day and we could just leave my sermon alone. But this is what he says, what is the rule then? It is be natural, forget yourself. Be so absorbed in what you're doing and in the realization of the presence of God and the glory and the greatness of the truth that you're preaching and the occasion that brings you together that you are so taken up by all this that you forget yourself completely that that is the right condition. That is the only place of safety. That is the only way in which you can honor God. Self is the greatest enemy of the preacher, more so than in the case of any other man in society. And the only way to deal with self is to be taken, so taken up with and so enraptured by the glory of what you're doing, that you forget yourself altogether. It does happen sometimes. Um, I don't know, brothers, how you feel when you preach, but sometimes I feel like I've got this great weight on my shoulder and I'm climbing a mountain trying to pull it up and it just seems like it's all effort and work and 
And then other times I feel like I'm just borne along on eagle's wings. And, uh, and I can't always account for why it feels one way one day and another way the next. I don't always know what the why of it. But when, it, when it's effortless, when some bit of what Lloyd-Jones is describing there is my experience, it's, it's the sweetest thing in the world. And, and I want more of it. And, but I'm pretty sure to get there, I have to kill self. But even more than that, I have to be, uh, to use his word, enraptured with Christ. My eyes have to be just full of him, delighting in him. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we set our hearts, our minds, our affections on Christ so that we can be enraptured with him, so that we can actually, in the preaching, maybe even before the preaching, taste and see that he is good. You, you need some practices like this. I, try to do John Piper's aptat thing, admit that I can't preach my way out of a paper bag, and, and then ask him to help me, and then pray, and then trust, and preach, and then try to give thanks for what help that I received. Uh, one practice I have that I've been doing since first pastorate back in the 80s in Montana is uh, I like to get there first to the church house, and I sit at the piano, and I just play and sing and sing and play and it warms my heart I don't know about you guys but my heart is often cold and burdened and overwhelmed and anxious and all kinds of things my heart is frequently disordered and I need to come back to the center of things and the center is Christ and so you may not be a singer I'm not all that good sometimes people walk in on it and I said it was not really meant fit for human consumption, and I, I guess it wouldn't be fit for divine either, but, but, um, but that warms my heart. It helps me get, it, it, it helps me get ready. It, it saturates me a bit with Jesus, and, and I need that. Because brothers and sisters, uh, I know you're not preaching the way I do, but you do proclaim the gospel. I hope you do. Trust that you do. Um, you, what needs to happen is beyond our ability to, to make it happen. So I need to taste and see that he's good while I'm preaching. I mean, I mean it needs to be happening right now. That's what, that needs to be reality in my heart while I'm doing it. And it also needs to be the reality of the hearts of the people that are here. And if I'm not tasting, I can't expect them to taste. And, but I can't make myself taste only Christ's spirit can do it. And, and I can't make the hearers taste. I, I can't do it. I want them to. But something has to happen beyond all of that. But I know and unless I'm Christ-saturated, it's not likely to happen to any large degree with those that are hearing. Um, my, my wife can make a, a cherry cobbler that will make you slap your mama. I mean, she can't. And... and uh, it's my, it's my mama's recipe. She makes it just as good as my mama did. It's good. And I could preach you a sermon about Lisa's cherry cobbler. I mean, I, I could. I could talk about the texture of the breading in it, the tartness of the cherries, 
the sweetness of the sauce, the contrast with vanilla ice cream beside that hot cobbler, and you know, I could, but, but you really wouldn't know it. You've got to, you have to taste it yourself. And, I, and, and so the preacher can only go so far. But if God will help him to taste, and then God will help the hearers to taste, then, then, then we're getting where we're supposed to be. And, and that's what all of Colossians is about, I think, and, and particularly this text. So I'm not going to preach just on that. I'm going to try to go further. I assume I've got a little bit more time. So let's walk through this a bit. So him we proclaim. So first of all, Christ is the content of preaching. He's the content. And one of the reasons I was drawn a bit to 2 Corinthians 4 is because Paul says there, he says, we proclaim, we preach Christ, not ourselves. And so he actually knows exactly what I was just talking about, that the greatest temptation to not preach Christ is to preach me. It might not be obvious. I'm theologically sophisticated enough to not let you in on the fact that I'm preaching me, but I can still be sort of preaching me, preaching for my glory and all of that. Not ourselves, but Christ. We preach Christ. He's the content. He, he really is. He's the subject. Everything centers around him. It does in Colossians, but it doesn't have to be in Colossians. Anywhere you go in the Bible, it's going to be that way. I didn't preach this way for a long time. I mean, I, I, was, I was at Rich Pond before. I, I, I thought all of this uh, kind of seeing Jesus all over the Old Testament was allegorizing. I was taught that in seminary. That was a bad thing to do. And I, I drank the Kool-Aid on that thing. And I mean, I mean I would pre if I was preaching Isaiah 53, you know, I'd get that, or Passover lab. But uh, all these other things, I didn't get that. And I, and I, I went to uh, Nine Marks Weekender about 2004, and I picked up uh, Graham Goldsworthy's uh, Gospel and Kingdom. It just absolutely rocked my world. And uh, just the whole Old Testament came alive for me. It was, it was similar to when I was 17 and seeing all of a sudden that God is sovereign over everything, even the salvation of my soul. And it just, it wrecked me then. This wrecked me too, but it was, it was a glorious wrecking. And uh, it took me so, such a long time to see that. And I know you guys already see it and it's a, a delight to you, but wherever you go in the Old Testament, you can just see him. Just a couple of really rich examples for me is late Genesis and the Joseph story. You know, he, is, he comes to his own, his, his, his own, they do not receive him. In fact, they throw him in a pit and then they sell him into slavery. And, and there's this virtual death to his father Jacob. And then later on, there's, there's this virtual resurrection. And, and through his suffering at the hands of his own people, his own people are redeemed. It's, just, it's beautiful, isn't it? And there's a lot to learn from the Joseph story about how to be, about sexual integrity and restraint. And all, there's all kinds of things in the story that, that call you to certain ways of living and honoring Christ in that. But surely, surely, the way he points us to Jesus is the main thing. Death and resurrection and the suffering that redeems us. And we meant it for evil. But God meant it for good in Christ. Or sometimes it's a contrast. This one you don't hear about quite as much, or I don't know that, I've, but, but it, it got a hold of me. It's, it's the contrast with Rehoboam. You know, in 1 Kings chapter 12, I think it is, and Solomon dies, and Rehoboam comes to the throne, and, and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do, and the people of Israel come to him and they say, hey, you know, you, 
uh, your daddy was really hard on us and you need to lighten up a little bit. So he laid this heavy yoke and you need to give a lighter yoke. And, and, uh, and he talks to the guys who counseled his dad and they say you need to listen to him. If you just listen to him, lighten up a little bit, be humble, be kind to him, merciful to him, they'll serve you all their life. And it'll be really good. And he thought, okay, but I think I want to talk to the guys I grew up with. He talks to those young guys. And the young guys say, they're a bunch of whiny babies. And what you need to do is you need to tell them, my pinky is thicker than my father's waist. And he gave you a heavy yoke, but I'm going to even add to it. And he, and he scourged you with a whip, and I'll do it with scorpions. I can't quote it, but he just, and, and off they go. And it's horrible, but can you not read that without thinking about Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly and hard, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light he's a king that's, that's kind that aims at the flourishing of his people he's just so good isn't he so Jesus is the content of our, our, our of our preaching whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament he's the substance and the sum he's all of it him we proclaim he had just said in verse 27 Christ in you, the hope of glory, but the, uh, the hymn there is, is Christ. He's our hope, and he's our subject. So wherever you go, preach the gospel. Preach Christ, and delight in him while you're doing it, because he's so good, and, and, and trust in him while you're doing it, because he's so worthy of it. So Christ is the content. Christ is also the balance. He's the balance, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm better at teaching than warning. I, I'm, I love John Newton, and if John Newton had a flaw, it was he sort of combated heresy by just telling the truth, but he didn't really combat heresy. He just said, this is what's true, and held that up as beautiful. And I kind of have a, that kind of personality. I don't like to confront. I'm not happy about the hard conversations. I, I do it. I try to be faithful. But it's, uh, it's not my, I, I don't enjoy that. I don't, warning is not my favorite thing. I'd rather teach, exhort, encourage. But it says here there's this balance. And Jesus, he always got it right, didn't he? He always did. He knew when to be tough and fierce. And he knew when to be tender and merciful. He knew when to drop the hammer. He knew when to come alongside, just encourage and love on them. And sometimes, even when he sounds like he's going to be severe, he's not. You remember Matthew 15 and that, that Canaanite woman? She's got the daughter that's in trouble, and she comes to him. And, and Jesus said, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And it sounds like, man, he's going to be severe. He's going to be, he's going to be harsh. He's treating this Canaanite woman like he treats the Pharisees. This is tough. And, uh, and she comes back. and says, even, the, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. Oh, woman, you have great faith. Great faith. Now, my son Ben, who's more of a New Testament scholar than I'll ever be, he, he says, Jesus said that first thing with a gleam in his eye, and I think he did, just trying to draw out her faith, you know. 
So he knows when to be tender, to teach, to encourage, to, to show this great, glorious mercy. He also knows when to drop the hammer. He knows when to be tough. He know, knows when to be severe. It, it's all from love, whether it's warning or not, but, it's, uh, but he, he knows how to do it. It's the perfect balance. Someone said, good preaching afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicting, afflicted, but I'm often afraid that my preaching tends to afflict the afflicted and comfort the comfortable. And I want to get that right. Jesus does. The balance is always perfect. And, and so he knows when to warn. He knows when to teach. And he knows how to do it with all wisdom. When you get over later in the letter, the Apostle Paul just says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. Each person. Jesus knew how to do that. He knew how to respond to the woman at the well in chapter 4 of John. He knew how to respond to Nicodemus in chapter 3. He just always gets it right. And I need that. But you see the wisdom of Christ and the balance of Christ in this preaching ministry that Paul is describing here. Christ is, he is our, our, our balance. Teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And, and then Christ is, the, he's the goal. He's the goal. What are we looking for? Mature in Christ. King James says perfect in Christ. Uh, but he's, the, he's what we're going for. Uh, I think Dr. Pennington would say that uh, this, this word here would, would mean wholeness. Wholeness. And uh, that sounds right to me. And I often have to pray. Uh, Unite my heart to fear your name. Because often my heart isn't whole the way it needs to be in the fear of the Lord or in Christ's saturation. He's the goal. Not only is, is he the goal for me, but I'm to become mature in Christ, whole in Christ, a wholeness and integrity within my heart and a wholeness and integrity between the reality of my heart and the reality of my words and the reality of my living. Uh, it's not just to be that in me, but that's, that's what we're aiming at. Brothers, we're, we're aiming at that with those that hear us. That we want to see that same integrity, that same wholeness in them, within their hearts. That their hearts are united, not divided. That it's not some of Jesus and some of self, but it's all of Christ and all for his glory. He's the goal. Now this is, this is really uh, convicting because we're, we're just short of this, aren't we? And ultimately, when he says we may present everyone perfect in Christ, I think that's talking about the great day when somehow as pastors we get to present uh, those that we were leading and shepherding before Christ. Here they are. <laughs> that's a convicting thought, isn't it? And, uh, and we want to we present them complete, whole. And until that day, we want to see them becoming but Christ bought them, saved them to become, growing in this wholeness, in this perfection, in this 
maturity. So, so, so the goal is not just getting them converted, getting them saved. That's the beginning of it. But, but it's more than that. It's bigger than that. It's not just winning and wedding. It's maturity in Christ. It's them becoming all that Jesus saved them to be. And I don't know about your church, but mine's got a ways to go. And their pastor has a way to go. Their elders have a way to go. We go to the grave still aiming at this, this wholeness in Christ. And this ought to break our hearts, but also whet our appetites. Um, I I was reading Joel Beakey recently and his book on reformed preaching. I don't remember the title of it. Some of you probably read it. And he gave this illustration I never heard before, but he he just said, you know, if 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 you walked into a building and you saw all kinds of graffiti on the wall and, and, uh, and it was just, you know, you, you might be angry. Who, who did that? Especially maybe it was in the church foyer or something like that. Who would desecrate this place? But, but, but then he said, if it, but if you, if you looked at an artistic masterpiece. I asked Lisa this morning while I was trimming my beard. I said, honey, do you have a favorite piece of art? And she said, yeah, um, I do. It's, uh, it's Van Gogh's Starry Night. And uh, just imagine if somebody just took paint, just threw it all over Van Gogh's masterpiece. You'd be, you wouldn't just be upset, you'd be, you'd be horrified. And, and that's what's happened in this world. I mean, everywhere you look and when you stand in the pulpit to preach to people, all of them were intended to be masterpieces. The work of God. They were created and made and remade for for glory and all that they're to become is embodied in who jesus is right now and 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 when you see them not that it's your break your heart i heard charles Leiter use this illustration he was talking about i think it was billy sunday but he's walking on the streets of chicago and there on the streets of chicago he meets a street walker and the street walker does what street walkers do she propositioned him what did he do? Well, you would think what Billy Sunday would do, he'd do what the Bible says, that you flee youthful lust, and he would just run rather than hang out. He didn't do that. He busted out crying. He just started weeping. Why did he weep? Because God's masterpiece is, is marred. It's just horrible. It's just not right. I was meditating in the 119th yesterday morning, and I, and, I, and I had, I can't give you the verse, but somewhere in there it says, my, my eyes flow with streams of tears because your law is not obeyed. That's probably not quite the quote, but it's pretty, pretty close. That's the, that's the gist of it. And I've thought about that. Why, why are his eyes streaming with tears? God's masterpieces aren't what they're supposed to be. But... But even more than that, even, the, even more than the marring of the image is the reality of the glory of who Christ is, the beauty and wonder of his wisdom and his grace and his mercy and his love and even his wrath and his holiness, his, his faithfulness, just all of it. He's so good and we're supposed to be like that. And that Christ is not seen and savored like that that he's not praised and prized as he ought to be, that we're short of his glory, it ought to break our hearts and, and long for that to be made right. 
the day when we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. Christ is the goal. Christ is also the breadth. I, uh, I jumped ahead to the last point. It, 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 Paul hammers away in this text, we, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone. In the Greek, it's literally every man, three times. Every man, every man, every man. Doesn't mean it neglects the sisters. It's just, it's just a way of saying everybody. Christ is the breadth. He's the breadth of it. As broad as his atonement goes, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He's, it, it's, it, it's, it's broad. It's, it's, it's all... It's all the nations. It's every nation and people and tribe and tongue. The, the breath as far as his love goes, as far as his dying, redeeming love goes all over the world. I'm, I'm going to preach and leave. Or usually I say try to preach and leave. That's a better way to say it. Uh, and, and I'm going to leave because Lisa and I are flying across the globe this afternoon. And we're, and we're going there because we love what's happening where we're going and we want to encourage those that are laboring on that field for the advance of the gospel in a very hard part of the 1040 window but there's opportunity there and and so and so and so we're going we're, because we love Christ we want him to be made known we, we love those that are serving there we love what they're doing and we and we long for for there to be worship of Christ in Yemen in Eritrea and Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Afghanistan and India. We want that because he's so good. He's the, he's the breath. At the end of his rant in chapter 1, he says that Jesus was reconciling to himself all things. And I know you guys have this love for Christ and love for the advance of the gospel. And I love you for loving it. And I love you for longing for it. Our, our preaching has this breadth. It, it goes beyond ethnic boundaries and global boundaries and socioeconomic boundaries and educational boundaries. It just goes all over the place to present everyone. There's a temptation in ministry to only invest in those that are becoming mature. You know, you invest in them, you disciple that one, and man, they, they'll make you look good. And there's this broken person over here that just struggles to make any progress at all. And they won't make you look good. But he didn't say just most men, most of the sons, most of the daughters or the, the fit ones. No, to present every one of them, the, the weak and the struggling and the difficult. I remember reading Dave Pallison saying, you, you need to spend some time with somebody that struggles. They just don't make much progress. You need to do some counseling with somebody like that. You won't, your head won't swell because you're such an effective counselor and pastor and you're a wonderful shepherd. They just struggle. They take a step forward. They take two steps back. You need to know that. You need to know it because that's the way the Lord feels about you. Because he's constantly exercising patience with you and you need to hang out with somebody that requires you a lot of patience. Every Every man, every woman. And then Christ is the source. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
how, how, do, you, how do you do this? How, how do you labor in this way? In 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about he's the least of all the apostles, and yet the grace of God was with great effect. He labored more than all of them, yet not me, but the grace of God within me, yet not I, but through Christ in me is the implication there. We're not left to do this on our own. We're not left to lift this heavy weight up the mountain in our, in our preaching, but he will come and he will help us. We struggle. We toil. We're not to be passive from this text because of his power in us. We're to struggle. We're to put forth effort. We're to work hard. We're to labor, but with his energy that powerfully works within me. He's committed to his own glory. He ought to be. He'd be immoral if he wasn't. He's committed to his Father's glory. The Spirit in him, in us, from him, is certainly committed to his glory. So the strength we'll receive will be best felt, experienced, known when we're aiming right at that. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He'll, he'll be faithful to you if you rely on him. He'll, if you aim at his glory, trust his strength, he'll, he'll help you. He'll, he'll be there. He's so good and so faithful. Years ago, we were in Montana. We were in a, on, a, on a hard field of work, and uh, occasionally we would want to leave, so we went to, we went to uh, Billings, Montana. We got a motel, not a hotel. We couldn't afford a hotel. We got a motel. We got a motel. It was the dead of winter in Montana. We got a motel uh, that had a little pool in it because we just needed to get away. We were going to swim with our boys. We had two sons. Joe was like six months, and Josh was like two and a half. As we got in the pool, Lisa needed to take Joe and change him or something like that. And uh, I was left there with Josh. I did something really stupid. I, uh, I took Josh and I put him on the edge of the pool and, uh, and I swam to the other side of the pool. Women in the room are about to kill me right now. I know that, but I did, I did that. Um, it was a small motel pool. It wasn't big. I'm not 100 meters from him or anything like that. But I did that and I was on the other side. And he just, uh, he just slid off the side of the pool. And I was terrified. I was like, oh my goodness, I've killed my son. So, so anyway, I just swim as hard as I can go to get him. And I scoop him up and, and I pick him up and I sit him on the side of the pool. And he's just sitting there just calmly. And uh, I said, son, were you scared? And uh, he said, no, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. And I sat there thinking, boy, I'm not sure I'm worthy of that kind of trust. But I, but I know a Christ who is, and, and you do too. He's just good. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he might have the supremacy. That's our Christ. So love him and trust him and preach him with all your heart until, <laughs> until we all get home, until we're all finally uh, mature in Christ. Let's pray. Please, Lord, help us 
the epistles to be Christ-saturated proclaimers of Christ. Forgive us when we're not. Uh, you know our hearts and our minds. You know what gets in the way. Forgive us. Help us. And, and the things that please you and what pleases you most is the, is the magnifying of your beloved son. So strengthen us in that, Lord, for his glory and for our good and the good of the souls that we seek to shepherd. We love you, Lord. We want to love you more. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.